Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for August 2013. I am writer-critic-controversial casting choice for Gentleman Ghost, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi there, I'm writer-director-worst-summer-movie-season-ever, Paul Anthony Nelson, and with us this month is our very special guest... Uh, hello, it's uh, Giles Hardy, who is a critic slash writer slash entertainment journalist, as though that means something, slash spoiler guy slash mainstream film apologist. Thank <laughs> you for being with us, Giles. It's, uh, it's oh, a pleasure to have you on. thank you for having me. It is uh, nice to, uh, to join you and to not have to talk about Steven Soderbergh, where I'm sure we would disagree extensively. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> no, you know, your fellow spoiler guy took care of that a year ago. We're, uh, we're safe. We're free, free from Soderbergh. But but we are not free from uh, Sofia Coppola. One of our one of our very early early podcasts, we talked about uh, Sofia Coppola's career, and she's finally come out with a new one, The Bling Ring. Like to me, this is the film I think everyone was expecting Spring Breakers to be. Uh, everyone thought it was going to Spring Breakers was going to be this uh, look at our shallow obsession with celebrity culture, and it was going to be this very specific thing, which I don't think it turned out to be. But I think The Bling Ring did. I think this is totally uh, on point for Coppola because this is kind of where, she, where she's been leading for a while. I think Marie Antoinette was heading in this direction. I think somewhere was. And this, this feels like a very natural progression for her. Can I ask a question? Sure. Does it have a third act? Uh, <laughs> because this has been her thing for a while and she got away with it very well uh, when she sets a film in Japan. But somewhere <laughs> just went, if I don't have a third act, it's the same thing as being artistic. And I don't think this film gets away with it even as well as Somewhere does. Oh, dear. Yeah. Uh, I, I See, I think it's only on point to a surface level. I, I actually am not sure that the satire in this film goes particularly deep or anywhere particularly interesting. I think it's amusing, and I think it, it does score those surface-level points, and some specifics of the real-life case are quite, you know, in- intriguing on a story level, but... It gets to about halfway and you realise, oh, you don't really have much more to say about this other than uh, kids watch a lot of dumb reality shows and revere celebrities that fill an uh, aspirational hole in their own lives about a capitalist system they've been lied to and uh, want to imitate that and aren't very articulate like i don't know like i just sort of feel like it kind of hits that wall and has nothing else to add to the conversation and i don't think it gives us any sort of insight into the characters nor any empathy i i've got to say the first half of this film i was on board the second half i was just bored i think the she's trying to be non-judgmental and it, that kind of comes across as as distancing maybe not going into the detail we would prefer because I think she's trying to be very fair and open-minded and just present them as they would be as if she was a camera following them around. I, f- um, I feel like there's a difference between non-judgmental and vague and mm. this feels vague. Like, this feels like it's not given... Like, I don't know, like, if a film wants to play both sides, you play both sides. This doesn't seem to play any side. It's It just, as you say, kind of observes them, but... Look, I'll say this for it. I think... Uh, like, I'm a big fan of the film, but I think its its main problem for me is that it's lacking a really strong blow uh, when it's it's death by a thousand cuts, which is fine, but, but I, I don't think is entirely satisfying. 
But that said, I do like her lackadaisical style. So even though this is probably my least favourite of her films to date, that's not necessarily a bad thing. There's another film which is quite thematically similar to it, and it's also made by somebody we've covered on Hyphenates. Michael Bay's Pain and Gain, again, another true story about uh, people who fall into a life of crime. Now, that's the thing. I, I saw these two films back-to-back, practically. Right. Um, one day after the other. And I thought Pain and Gain did this a lot better. I still think <laughs> it, it's satire is mainly surface level, but I think it went a, a little bit deeper. And I thought it, it was very even-handed with the characters, like to the point where they were weirdly sympathetic at times um, for doing despite this horrible thing that they did. Mm. And I, I think it had a little bit more to say about, you know, again, the lie of the American dream and... These people have been brought up on this kind of, you know, literally steroided idea of success. And it's such a fucking weird story that that alone propels it, I think. Like, I've got, I didn't love this film as much as others. I do have some issues with it. I think, I think Bay's very dubious sledgehammer sense of humour comes into play again here and kind of lets it down a little bit. I think it's over long. But... I reckon I think the cast are all fully committed and they're all really great and and Bay really tones down his style you know it's coherent it's not shaky mm. it's there are some beautiful images and I think this is the closest thing we've seen to the the, the guy who made Bad Boys and the Rock than we've seen in a very very long time yeah it look it's uh, I think it's probably his best film in a long time if not just his best film full stop is there's a real pathos in this film that we haven't seen from him before mm. uh there's it's it's quite engaging he he mocks his characters but in a gentle way because he still has affection for them i think that it, if i have a criticism of it and i do have many but but i th- i think my primary one is that He's often accused by me, as well as other people, of being sexist and racist and homophobic and all of these things. And he's found a film in which that sort of works, or or characters who act like this and are judged for acting like this. But um, Michael Bay does something which I am going to refer to as having his beefcake and eating it too. (laughs) Thank you. He gets to make fun of them for these things, but he also engages in them a little. He hasn't really toned it down from that sort of objective viewpoint. So I'm a little dubious about that, but I think that he's... This is the first time I've really felt that Bay is in on the joke. Even if he's not entirely in on the joke, he's mostly in on it. And uh, and I, I'm finally catching a glimpse of the bay that so many people love. So also out this month is the last part of what is what has become known as the Cornetto Trilogy, the uh, series of films uh, that all star Simon Pegg and Nick Frost and are written by Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg and directed by Edgar Wright. Uh, none of them sharing characters but uh, connected in the sense that they'll express a love of genre that uh, filtered through the, the English experience. And uh, The World's End, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a and say this, on my first viewing, it's my favourite of the three. Uh, this, this may well change. I have a feeling that uh, the moment I put Shaun of the Dead on, again, I will recant, uh, because I do love Shaun of the Dead. But you know, on first viewing, there was, there was just something about this that really worked for me. I think the characters are so well drawn, and I think it's the best performance we've seen from Peg because it's the first time he's been... Uh, he, he's still technically the leading man, but he shouldn't be. He's kind of... He, the character he's playing 
should be the annoying friend in any other film. And because he's, I think he's got more breadth in this film than the last two to do to do really interesting things. It's funny that you've said it though, because this is a small tick from me because I really enjoyed it, but I would say it's my third favourite of the Cornetto trilogy. <laughs> and and even, and whilst I'm not entirely sure, because I'd probably change my mind if I put on Shaun of the Dead, I actually would rate Hot Fuzz. Um, as my favourite of the three. So, you know, for those who didn't know what the Cornetto trilogy is, at least we've named them all. This is true. Um, <laughs> though, I do see what you're saying. I do think the first two-thirds of this film are brilliant because they really are... It, they've gone to an ensemble. I think that's where Simon Pegg tends to sing. It's because he's not trying to be the, the clown at the front of the class. He's genuinely part of the group, and they bounce off each other really well in this. And mm. um, Rosamund Pike, I think, is very good in this as well. Yep. But, um, no, I just... I actually found it's... To me, this is quite clearly the progeny of Hot Fuzz and and Shaun of the Dead, and you could almost sort of you know create your little genetic map to you know mm-hmm. say it's got the you know the father these bits come from the father's side and these bits from the mother's side. People in small towns around England must be just giddy with delight that these guys aren't going to make another Cornetto film because small towns never do well out of these. This <laughs> is true. This is true. But I have to say that in a year where more than any other year, we're experiencing mass destruction fatigue. It's Armageddon every second week, isn't It's it? insane, and it's yeah. all starting to blend together and look like the same thing. And this at least looks different from all the other versions we've had, and I think part of that is that it is in the English countryside and not major American city. It's oh, a mini- absolutely. I enjoyed it's it a lot. It's a mini-pocalypse. A mini-pocalypse. But uh, much excitement because there is a new Park Chan-wook film out... Uh, the South Korean director, who is uh, easily that country's best export, not talking down anything else that's come out of South Korea. I just really, really like Park. The man behind Old Boy and Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and a slew of other films has made his first English language film, written by actor Wentworth Miller. There, there was a concern, I think, that when an edgy director or, or, or any sort of brilliant director from overseas comes and is filtered through not necessarily the Hollywood system, but even just the American film system, they tend to have the edges sanded off them. I ask you to turn to figure A, Lasse Hallstrom. Um, but <laughs> That's the second month in a row we've used Lasse Hallstrom as a whipping boy. Oh, yeah, I, yeah that's right. Sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry, Lasse, but Jesus, you made... Your career sucks, pal. You made my life as a dog, and now you're making, you know, teen romance. Anyway, doesn't matter. Dogs. Um, but no, I don't think that's happened here. I think that the sex and violence in terms of, uh, of the explicitness of them is certainly less in this film, but I think that's appropriate to the material. I think in terms of the intensity of what sex and violence means in the world of the Park Chan-wook films, it's just as intense as any of his other work. And one of the most beautiful films from this year, and certainly one of his most beautiful, every, every frame is like a painting. Uh, it's just it's just a beautiful film, and I, yes, clearly I liked it a lot. Look, I adore Park Chan-wook, and I was very much looking forward to this. And I think you're absolutely right. I don't think any of his directorial edge has been blunted here. It's as beautiful as his other films physically. It has his his way with a sequence is just fully fully intact. It's mm. absolutely mind blowing. Uh, there's a reveal. Uh, involving the Matthew Good character towards the end of the film that is just a symphony. Like, it is just so brilliantly put together. Mm. It puts you back in your seat. I think the performances are wonderful. I think I, I think uh, Mia Voshikovska has that kind of right edge of 
mystery sweetness and malice that is necessary for her character to work. Um, I think Kidman's character is, um, I think she navigates that, uh, that sort of journey to, you know, because um, she's quite sort of harsh, mm. uh, uh, severe, but quite sympathetic towards the end. And I think she manages that really well. And yeah. Good's terrific. The thing I that just kind of bounced off me with this film, though, was the screenplay. I just think oh, that, really? yeah, I think that it's, and I know you have a little bit of a thing for Wentworth Miller, and I'm sorry <laughs> I'm about to do this, but it's, I just think that, yeah, I, I, I feel like this film misses Park's authorial voice. Like, I, I really wanted... I really felt that maybe if he was a co-writer on this, like it definitely covers his kind of macabre territory because, I mean, what the film is ultimately about is a very Park Chan-Wookian idea, but it's it, it just feels kind of blunted and a little bit surface level and not nearly as kind of twisted or unexpected as the kind of stuff Park normally comes up with, nor that kind of moral complexity that he throws into things. I didn't find this nearly... As uh, as as dexterous or, or moral co- morally complex as his previous films, but having said that, I I did enjoy this film, but uh, yeah, I really really wanted to love it because I adore his South Korean works, but I couldn't quite. Um, yeah, okay. Giles, see, I, I it's really funny. I I did love this. I was I'm I'm not I've not seen as many of Director Park's films as I would like to, um, but I from what I have seen, I think to say this isn't as complicated as his original works is, that's really a, still a very broad field that he's working within. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I do think it's as morally complicated. I mean, I think this is a film that is turning to the um, turning to the Dexters of television and saying cinema can still do this in a really interesting way and with its beauty, it can, you know, basically hit Dexter for six because this uses the cinema screen and the, the camera for the most, you know, extraordinary achievements. And this is the single most beautiful pencil that's hurt someone I've ever seen on a screen. It is. <laughs> you sat there almost wanting me to hit you, to, to stick that pencil in you. It was that gorgeous to watch. So I, I, really, I, I do disagree that this isn't morally... Um, complicated at all. I think it, there's a lot to it, and and the more I've talked to people about it, the more I think, particularly Nicole Kidman's character. If you think about her and you think about the, you revisit in your mind all of her actions with the knowledge of how the film ends. I think this is. I, th- I think it's Nicole Kidman's best performance in over a decade. I think she's great in this, mm. but there's just a couple of hints at the end that make me desperately want to rewatch this because I suspect her character is actually far more layered and nuanced than the initial for the the initial sort of vapid um self-centered um you know southern aging southern belle that we're sort of mm. first led to believe she is and i think that i mean i really enjoyed this film but i've enjoyed even more thinking about it more and more and thinking about what it's commenting on the various people involved can we also talk about? I mean, we've talked about the beauty, but the the composition and design in mm. particular, as well as the um, just the basic cinematography, is mm. just luscious. Like ev- like everything, just such brilliant detail. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm I'm scared of spiders in a whole new way now. Now there are a lot of films that we we won't have time to cover uh, that were out this month, but we do have to end on Elysium, and it's not because it's a film I love. It's not because it's a film I hate, because I I don't. I feel quite ambivalent towards it. But 
I, I, I want to float a theory to you, and that theory is that there have been so many damn uh, post-apocalyptic science fiction films come out this year that I think they've all sort of merged into one, and some characters have escaped the one film A and gone into film B, and, uh, and 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 I think back to After Earth, the Will Smith one, with, uh, where everyone. Why would you? It, well, because everyone had those weird accents that sure. I described as that combination of sort of English clipped and 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 deep Southern, you know, this weird sort of outer space accent, which was an admirable idea, whether or not it worked. In Elysium, Jodie Foster adopts this weird accent. And I think she's in the wrong post-apocalyptic film. I think she's meant to be in After Earth and just accidentally got edited into Elysium. And nobody realised until it was too late. Well, they're both Sony. Maybe she just rocked up to the wrong lot. Yeah, everyone was too embarrassed to say. Who knows? It's like, we've got Jodie Foster in our film. Shh, shh. It's all right. No, send the other actress home. This will be fine. Anyway, that's all I have to say about that because the film, yeah, it did. Look, I can't. It's one of those films that sort of ticks all the boxes, and it's this is kind of. I was less into District Nine than everyone else because I kind of felt, yeah, it sort of does everything right, but I didn't feel it, and I certainly don't feel this one. It's just, it's fine, I guess. Uh, this film ticks boxes, you say? It, um, I think it. I think it's fine in, in places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Go, um, go for it. Yeah. Look, I, in a in a very mediocre summer season, uh, I this was actually a film I actively did not like. I, I'll give it credit in a couple of areas right up front. I think Matt Damon's terrific. I think it has great production values. And I think it's one of the few blockbusters of the season that tries to engage through character rather than effects. Beyond that, it does not do the latter well. It does very little well. Um, it became one of... It's such a... One, like, it's a great idea that is completely lobotomized. Um, and to the point where it became one of those films where logical faults just kept jumping out at me. And I, normally I'm not that nitpicky a guy. I'll, I'll give a film a lot of chances, but... With this, it's like between the one-man defense system for this multi-billion-dollar yeah. uh, space station to the space station that doesn't have a roof and people can just fly into it whenever they like, and the uh, the fact that nobody's ever at home on the planet whenever somebody wants to use a medibay, like it just <laughs> it just got ridiculous. I was like, clearly the storytelling rigor hasn't been applied here, and it's no like I mean I'm like you, Lee. I didn't flip for District Nine, but I liked it. I thought it was a really solid film. And, uh, you know, Blomkamp was a guy to watch and a guy with some, uh, filmmaker with something to say. I feel like, even though Blomkamp is the writer and director of this, the producer of the film is a guy named Simon Kinberg. Now, look up his IMDb filmography, boys and girls, and you'll be revealed uh, to see one of the biggest hacks working in Hollywood today. And Kinberg's hacky <laughs> screenwriting is all over this film, and I can't help thinking he's done a rewrite on it. It's just... By the end, nothing makes sense. There are there, uh, there are things thrown into the plot. Characters contradict what they've been built up. Like, a character is built up a certain way and then behaves in a way and completely contradict that. It's just one of those films that, on a screenwriting level, is infuriating. And Jodie Foster is awful in a way that I've, I couldn't imagine she could ever be. Uh, she's one of my favourite actresses on the planet. And I spent this film uh, with my jaw agape every time she came on screen. Every second line she says feels like it's going to be followed with... Uh, it's just, yeah, I thought this was a bit of a misfire. 
But yeah, weird accent, right? Oh, yeah. Like, well, I, I have a feeling she was doing English and then was just being directed by Blomkamp, who's a South African, and that began creeping in. Her ear yeah, possibly became attenuated to Blomkamp. That's something that's you, that's something you can't off. blame on Kinberg. Yeah, true. That's the only <laughs> thing I can't blame on. Giles, please tell us, whom have you picked for your... Hellas for Hyphenates, Filmmaker of the Month. Look, I am apparently uh, in need of being clinically institutionalised because uh, in a peak of uh, insanity, I chose a, a young filmmaker who's, who's barely uh, really made a film at all, uh, <laughs> one Mr. Steven Spielberg. Um, I chose him because I, I realised I'd... I'd sort of, I've not enjoyed his last two, few films uh, to varying degrees, uh, and I've sort of, in reviewing them, I've sort of been, you know, kicking him more than I'd like. And I suddenly, in thinking about looking at a filmmaker, I thought I'd love to have a, a sort of another adventure through the... Uh, the filmography of Mr. Spielberg because there are so many good films there and it was so nice to remember and, and in fact, in a, with, in a few small cases, um, dis- discover um, films of his that I just absolutely love. It was such an interesting choice because, I mean, for a lot of reasons, I guess looking at it from the perspective of this podcast, we've had uh, people pick... Like, a lot of the big names haven't been picked, and I was starting to feel like some of them would never be. Like, we've had uh, Jan Svankmeyer covered, but no one's picked Scorsese, and, you know, someone's done Alexander Susan- Payne, or Suzanne Beer, and, and, but no one's done Kubrick or Hitchcock, you know. And there are a lot of big names, and I was starting to think that maybe these big names are too big, and they're not personal enough. And Spielberg was one I was wondering, would we ever get to him? And I find it uh, most interesting that uh, you picked him because uh, it implies that you have a personal connection with his filmography that, uh, above most other filmmakers. Oh, look, I think I think that's probably very fair, and it, and it's it's funny because it, for that reason, I almost chose George Lucas because you know he Star Wars is you know, and I'm I think I'm the only person on the planet, but Star Wars is actually quite important to me as a child. Uh, and, <laughs> <laughs> but but ultimately, I thought about it, and and whilst that saga is you know has been seminal in my love of film. If I look at sort of just these constant films and the constant presence of films that I loved for more than two decades, I mean, more often than not, Steven Spielberg was involved in one way or another. Mm. And the other thing is, look, as I sort of said in my hyphenate at the beginning, I am always a bit of a mainstream film apologist. I I love jumping to the defence of the popcorn films when... You know, more than three film lovers get together, they rapidly start sort of not being allowed to talk about American films because apparently it's no longer, you know, intelligent and you're somehow diminishing the art. Um, and I think that Steven Spielberg, for all of his flaws, and, and we've seen too many of them recently, he is a man who does genuinely understand and, and has mastered the art of cinema. He's, he's definitely a master craftsman. Um, yeah. In the way that a lot of the old Hollywood directors were master craftsmen, uh, guys like Ford and Hawks, um, and I think he's ve- he sees himself very much in that tradition mm. too. You, you can really see all of those guys, you know, Forks and, and Ford and Hitchcock, and all of his influences in those first few films. Uh, from I guess, the only short I've been able to see is the the infamous uh, Amblin from 1968, but he and then he made Duel and Something Evil and Savage 
Uh, I think they were all made for TV. Jewel was deemed so good, it was given a cinema release. Have I got that story right? You you do indeed. Uh, Yes, indeed, yes. And Jewel was one I saw quite early on, and that was a formative film for me, almost more than his other films, because it's just so stripped back, and it's, it's, you know, somebody with something to say. It's just... uh, It's interesting, like, when does Spielberg become that figure of that that basically represents because he he's the first name that everyone knew in film you know you mentioned a director certainly when i was growing up in the 80s and 90s if there was a director anyone knew it was spielberg and when did he become that guy well i think it was it was post jaws but um the thing is i think there were well the first director i mean the well the first director i certainly know of that had that kind of brand name imbramata was was hitchcock Mm. And it's interesting mm. that Duel is so overtly Hitchcockian. Mm. It's like he's, you know, he hasn't made his own name yet, but he's modelling himself very much after someone who who did. And even uh, you know, Something Evil is a, is a horror TV movie as well. And he was kind of, and you think Jaws is his second film, and it's kind of, it's almost like he was kind of almost crafting out this master of suspense. Uh, sort of thing going on, and he was a guy who was very focused on 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 the craft of filmmaking and he describes himself as because he he basically got an internship at Universal at the age of twenty on the back of his short film Amblin and uh, was um, Sid Sheinberg, the chief of Universal at the time he, uh, Spielberg was kind of known as his folly, and he was given this TV contract and he was known as a kid who was into lenses but didn't know shit from Shinalo when it came to actors and he kind of learned that as he went on but yeah it's, it sounds very much like the Hitchcock template. So it's kind of interesting that of all these filmmakers and the way we think of Spielberg now is not necessarily the way he started out. Oh, God, no. I mean, look, the, the film that I, I really enjoyed discovering from his early stuff was Sugarland Express. Yeah. Which was, I mean, I think I, the first time that, well, the first time in years that that had appeared on my radar was this year when when he uh, chaired Khan. Everyone said, and of course he had Sugarland Express at Khan many years ago. And I think most people went, yeah, of course, I totally knew that. I, I completely. <laughs> just, it sort of puts a, a, an interesting angle on what you're saying because he wasn't known for working well with actors but he got some great performances in Sugarland Express and it's a it's a there are some nuanced performances there which it's like he lost the ability to get nuanced performances for another couple of films after that well I think I think certainly a key part of his early films uh which is really in Duel and Sugarland and Jaws is that you generally within the first 15 minutes you know exactly who everyone is what they want and you want what they want he's got this i think quite innate understanding of character and and goals and how that that will suck an audience in and whether or not he did know anything about actors that early on he certainly understood enough about character for the actors to always give great performances and uh, the, I think that's a tenant of even as he jumps from genre to genre, that, that sticks all the way through. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because the one film in those early ones that bombed and which I also finally watched for the first time and totally see why is 1941. Yeah. And, the, and to me, it's partly character. It's also he is a consummate storyteller. And 1941 was his effort to make a, a lampoon, a slapstick film that... It, it almost is a collection of skits, and because it doesn't have a single story, mm. it just falls apart all over the place. I, I like it a lot. I get why people don't. Um, to, to me, I, I 
I, I do get the impression he's trying to do duck soup, but with <laughs> that sort of Saturday Night Live cast. And it's like it is kind of duck soup meets the Blues Brothers, isn't it? Yeah, well, no, to me, on a grand scale. To me, it's the film that came out the year before Flying High slash Airplane, depending on which country you were watching it mm. in. And the Airplane achieved exactly what this film was trying to and missed by so far. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this is a guy who's coming off the successes of Sugarland and Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And I do, I, I do kind of sense, and he's about to do Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. And I wonder if this is a guy who thinks, I can do anything and is just trying this completely out-there genre, one he would really never return to again, just to see if he can. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Like, it's like, the, uh, he's very measured in his approach. Like, he will try anything, but if he's, he feels like he's failed it in any way, he seems to generally not return. Mm. And Sugarland wasn't a uh, success, by the way. Like, it did, pre- like it did have I a Khan I just mean in terms screening. of Khan, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, but in terms of box office, it sunk without oh, a trace, and, and nobody, you know, ever heard of it, which is a shame because it's a hugely underrated film. Mm. And then, of course, he was this 27-year-old who was given Jaws and the budget ballooned and everything kind of went... but. You know, I, I get the feeling if Jaws had flopped, we'd probably never see him direct a thriller again. I think he is a consummate storyteller, but you don't become the most financially successful director in the history of the medium without tapping into a primal place. And that's where I think what you guys are saying about, you know, he's very strong on goals and character. I think his stuff is always very primal. I mean, down to the sentimentality that he's sort of known for as well. It's always going for this very primal place. And sometimes it kind of, you know, over-eggs the pudding and misses the mark. But when it hits, it it, it just goes gangbusters. I love what you're saying about over-egging the pudding because one of the things I was looking at, sort of, when you look at so many of his films together, you see that what you see as the flaws in some films are essentially the strengths in others. Like... And and when the reason I mentioned the over egg and the pudding or grabbed on you mentioning it is I don't think Steven Spielberg is capable of not including something he thinks of in a film. Like every idea he has ends up in the film and, and sometimes you you end up with these glorious sort of murals, these masterpieces, but sometimes you just get these films where it just too much is thrown at the problem. Um, jumping right to the most one of the most recent ones, War Horse is a classic example of that. Like there's just there's so much in there that none of it works. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I feel like Warhorse and The Terminal are his two films that validate his detractors. Like, I if, don't hate The Terminal nearly as much as some people do. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love Hanks' performance, but beyond that, it really grates on me. But but it's that thing, it's like, they show all those, you know, it's the, it, the whole uh, Spielberg face uh, syndrome that goes through all of his films, uh, which is the kind of the, you know, the low-angle dolly into somebody looking off in wonder. Mm. Which is used to such brilliant effect in so many of his films. You, you got things like uh, War Horse, where they're doing it at the horse at one point, and it just makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> it's just laughable. It's not. It's like I love War Horse, and, oh and, and the horse, the horse is a totally legitimate protagonist in that film, which is why it's called War Horse. It's in the title. Joey, <laughs> Joey. No, let's, let's let's not go there. By yeah, that definition, uh, of course, now, you realise the shark is the protagonist in Jaws. Why not? Yep. And a much why more. Why not? <laughs> and but the shark doesn't get the Spielberg face. It, it's a perfect film. It is. It's brilliantly constructed. It has three terrific star performances of all different shades. It's 
you know, it's set up and pay off it. And, and, you know, after the payoff, it gets out quickly. There's a reason it, it basically started the blockbuster. I now, mean, this is, now, this is interesting. This is one of his biggest legacies, if not his biggest. Spielberg the created sum the sum of yep. blockbuster. And now, boy, has that been perverted. Yeah. <laughs> his impact on, on, on the last three decades of film has been inestimable. And Jaws, you watch Jaws and you, you can kind of see, and Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T., and you can kind of see why. Mm. Now, the interesting thing about his next film after that, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, was inspired by his one f- attempt at a feature film before Sugarland Express, which was a film he made on Super 8 at 16 called Firelight. Have you guys heard of this? I've heard of it. Haven't been able to track it down. Did I? Well, there's no. I know I didn't track it down. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I've seen a few minutes of it, uh, seconds of it on YouTube. But yeah, it's it. But the seconds of it I saw on YouTube, very close encounters. Like it's a, you know, there's a car that stops at a, at a at a crossing, and there's a light in the sky, and it's very much and. And it's also telling that Close Encounters is one of the very few, I think it's only two films, uh, Close Encounters and AI, that Spielberg uh, is the sole screenwriter of as well as director. Mm. So there's clearly a lot of him in it, and I think he was very, very much wanted to tell this kind of friendly aliens kind of story. And it's a lot more deliberate than a lot of his films in terms of pacing, but um, I think it still holds up. I I think it's pretty interesting. I think it's a film that really speaks to that. I mean, he's, he and Lucas often talk about their whole, you know, they always were going to see films on the weekends and, you know, seeing the Sunday matinees and that sort of thing. And it, this film always strikes me as the equivalent of a little kid going, what if there really was an alien and if you could go and meet it? And, right. and this and this is a theme that you know obviously comes back, you know, and comes back fairly soon in a in a in ET. Mm. But it's like. The, the thing about Close Encounters is it wouldn't work as a film now because now you'd have to have a mo- mega special effects budget and the aliens would have to arrive in the first act and it'd have to be extraordinary uh, and, and extraordinary in that level of sort of digital mayhem. Mm. Whereas, I mean, this is a film that has a scene about mashed potato. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's because he, you know, it's, it's such a film of its time that, you know, the concept of the aliens arriving is much bigger in this film than the aliens arriving. And that, sadly, is something that's lost to a big film nowadays. And I just think it, it always felt to me like, as much as it's Richard Dreyfus who is not an eight-year-old, uh, that he almost is this equivalent of the eight-year-old desperately trying to find a position where he can finally meet these aliens who he's heard so much about for so long. And he has that sense of childlike wonder as well. Of and, course. It, and it's that first film to the really now. I mean, Sugarland does a little of it, but it really nails the domesticity that would become a thing with Spielberg. The whole focus on family and um, and and just just the home. And it's that it's you're right, Giles. It's that low level view of a big kind of issue that we've lost in film today. Everything's got to be so ridiculously grand and self-serious. So, like, uh, it's just interesting for someone who invented the summer blockbuster how much that idea has been twisted and, and bloated. Of course, he would then completely perfect the form with the one-two punch of Raiders and E.T. Mm. Exactly. I mean, they are two... I mean, E.T. is... You sort of mentioned the sort of the why I chose this. This is such a beautiful film, and it's also frustratingly the only film where he um, succumbed to what we can only call George Lucas syndrome of trying to... Uh, Edit the re-edit the film decades later once digital technology allowed him to with the infamous removal of the guns. Mm. Yeah. But he did take that back. 
He uh, did. Unlike Lucas, he's now. I think the version now on Blu-ray has the guns back, which is which is great. He saw the error. It does. Of, it does way. indicate a sort of late career homogenization that that didn't exist in the early stage of his career. Which Absolutely. I do want to get to that uh, later. We're gonna we're, we're gonna remember that word homogenization. Um, but I've written it down in the notes. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you. But post these films, because he did you know Raiders, as you say, ET. Uh, a segment on Twilight and Zone. And he loved movie. Twilight Zone. Yeah, and then did uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom in 84. So, you know, he, he he's definitely carved himself out a niche. What I want to ask is his next couple of films, before he does the third Indiana Jones film, he does The Colour Purple in 85 and Empire of the Sun in 87. And I get the feeling he's really playing with these old-school directors that he loved, these old Hollywood types, the Michael Curtizes, the Billy Wilders, who could jump from genre to genre and mastered all of them. Mm. And he's going for the big emotional hit. I mean, this is obviously something he will perfect later on. It's a mainstay of his career. But at this point, early on, how do you, how do you think he fares with something like Colour Purple? I just saw that for the first time today. Oh, wow. And it's it was the one link. It was the one Spielberg film I hadn't seen. And I've got to say, I thought, you know, for a white Jewish guy in his 30s doing this quintessential female African-American, uh, you know, turn-of-the-century kind of story, I thought he nailed it. Um, it it's you know, he does hit the sentimentality button at times, but there's some performances in that movie are so incredibly moving. And, um, and it, it doesn't seem to, uh, insult its, uh, its, uh, subjects or its audience. Um, you know, I, like I was utterly surprised by the, uh, sensitivity of the way he handled it. It's a, it's a film that I, I sort of was, I mean, I was young and young, but old enough to sort of be aware of this film. I didn't see it at the time, but um, it didn't really appeal to a 10-year-old. <laughs> but it's funny how, it's a film that was, it was lauded at the time. It was, it was extraordinary at the time. And then it became sort of cool to hate on it for a while. Mm. And, and it's funny that now we have, you know, the help and the butler coming out. You sort of get to see that, he is a man who was so far ahead of his time, and the help uses just as much sentimentality to tell a very similar sort of concept, or to be that sorry, not similar concept, but you know, to present some of the same issues. Mm-hmm. Because it's like we finally, yeah, it became it became awkward to use sentimentality for some issues for a while there. And the thing is, he there's no question that this is a sentimental film, but it's a film that uses the sentimental sentimentality willfully and with intent there's not it's not like it's accidentally done that way in a you know to hide something it is it is there so that in 1985 that was a much braver film than it feels like it is now mm. yeah and absolutely the sentimentality is there to give access to middle america who saw that film and because of the sentimentality they didn't feel like it was slapping them across the face right mm. Yeah, it's delivered with a little bit of spoonful of sugar, but I think it exactly. earns it. Can, can I bring some, something up that we talked about last month? Because we discussed the idea, which I've never really bought into, that mm. um, a filmmaker needs to have experience to a degree, the experiences of the, the characters. You, you know, so Spielberg won't have experienced what it's like to be a black woman, but I think there might be something to it. I might have to go back on that because 
you, you look at something like The Colour Purple and Amistad in 97, mm. and which which I, I, I don't... I haven't really seen Amistad since it came out. I, I remember not minding it, but I think in between them, the one that really works is Schindler's List in 93, where he is drawing on his family history to, to an extent, or at least his his culture, in talking about the, the plight of the Jews during the Holocaust. And that feels like the most successful of all these films, where he really gets to the nub of the experience and, and, and creates something incredibly powerful. And, I, yep. I don't know that I... I, I don't agree with the, the causal link you're drawing. I mean, I think obviously Schindler's List is extraordinarily successful, and I can't. I'm not questioning that in the slightest. But I found it very interesting hearing that comment in last um, in in your podcast last month. Because apart from else, anyone who's acted, I found it really weird for an actor to say that a director must have experienced something to do it, because that implies actors can't act. <laughs> Because the whole notion of storytelling is that you are telling a story that you are not currently experiencing, otherwise you are a documentary maker at some level. Mm. And I think, yes, it requires more skill to go further beyond your own experience set, but ultimately that is the task of the director. I I always think it's a... It's a fallacy to say the reason that a film does or doesn't work is because of the experience of the director. It is to do with the skill of the director. Mm. And I think that... Whilst I think you're right, Schindler's is hugely successful, I also think Empire of the Sun is a brilliant film. I adored that as a child. I agree. Um, yeah, and, I mean, and it was one of those times, where, that was the moment when you really realised how good Spielberg is at using children as an access point to a story as mm-hmm. well. Because, I mean, obviously finding Christian Bale as a child didn't, you know, it wasn't a bad bit of casting. <laughs> but the way that Christian Bale's character is used in that film is such a beautiful... Again, it's a bit like the sentimentality in The Colour Purple. It's a way of giving you access to a prison of war camp, but the child is used so that you don't feel the sting nearly as much, and so you can experience it. And I think that that's what works there, and I think that Schindler's List... Again, hell, obviously there is a, a... you know, infamous poster child uh, in Schindler's List. It's the 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 girl in red. But mm. I think he Schindler's List is a more mature film, but that isn't because he experienced it. Or obviously, he didn't experience um, the Holocaust. But it, it, you know, it's not because his family experienced the Holocaust. It's because he came at it a different way. Uh, and I think that I I I I agree with that. It. It's more successful. But I don't think that it's because he is uh, a white Jew and therefore more you know more accessible to that story. And it's interesting you make that point because I think The Colour Purple connected strongly with the African-American community mm. Mm. Okay. In, in the 80s. So, yeah, um, like in that term, the films were kind of equally successful. So he's he, he's jumping around a lot from genre to genre during this period. He does the third Indiana Jones film. He does... Which the- is awesome. By the way, Connery as Ford's dad, what a choice. That was almost as good a casting as Christian Bale. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love it. I'm a huge, huge fan of of Last Crusade. And I think, you know, and then he does the the supernatural romance always in 89. Which I think... Goodness me. Yeah, I found that a little underrated. I kind of like it. It's a a pure passion project for him. It was based on one of his favourite films called A Guy Named Joe. I think it was, if not a folly, kind of a very kind of sentimental project for himself. And I don't... Like, it's not among his best films, but it's kind of like... I, I think it's a fulfilling minor work. I think it's one of Spielberg's greatest 
if this is on TV, you find yourself watching it kind of films. Yeah. <laughs> but, the prob- but the problem is it can never be anything other than Audrey Hepburn's last film, mm. and that mm. is its greatest sin at the same time. <laughs> I want to talk about a, a certain um, dislike of particularly the film Hook in 91. Now, I understand where this, where this comes from. I, I can see the film that the people who hate it uh, are, are focusing on. But I've also noticed that all the people, at least that I've heard, who don't like this film are of a certain age. And, and that age is slightly older than me. And when I was a kid, this was a very exciting film. When I was about uh, 10 years old, I think I would have been, there was something immeasurably exciting about this story that we knew, Peter Pan, about this, it's in the real world, he's grown up, and what if we go back there? And there's something very, very relatable to that. And and, and going around my school at the time, there was a palpable sense of excitement that was absolutely paid off in the cinema. And yes, there's a lot of it that that doesn't work through the, the eye of an adult, but I think he taps into something that is completely uncynical and, and, and childlike, even in a film like this. I agree entirely. I think I was in that slightly older generation, but I actually really enjoyed this. I think the reason it sort of gets picked on is because I also remember this was a film that had a huge amount of hype before it came out. Yeah. Um, this was sort of on the cusp of when movies became this thing where you talked about them before they released. I remember there were images of Julia Roberts as Tinkerbell that sort of came out a month before and that sort of thing, and it was something that was in the mainstream. It wasn't that, you know, if you were just, you know, if you, you were sort of getting mm. magazines in brown envelopes. And <laughs> I think there was a lot of expectation that this was going to be the Peter Pan for everyone. And the problem is that, look, there's a whole syndrome named after Peter Pan, and (laughs) it is because everyone wants their inner child to be perfectly sated by something like Hook. But it was ultimately designed for children, not for the children in adults, and I think it worked really well. I really liked the film, and I still do when when I see it, but it's so shamelessly good, and it's got food fights with imaginary food. It's, there is not a cynical hair in this film, and I think if you come at it with cynicism, it falls down more easily than nearly any of his films, but that isn't actually a failing. That's the thing. I feel like critics brought their own cynicism to it. Like, I think it's, exactly. un- it's unwieldy, but you're right. Yeah, there's, there's, there's an innocence to it and some wonderful performances as well that just really captivate you. Yeah, as a 16-year-old, I dug it. So that same year as Schindler's List, he made Jurassic Park... Has there ever been a better year for a film director in the history of man- history of the world? It's extraordinary. Yeah. And Jurassic Park's great. Like, Jurassic Park is a slasher film with dinosaurs made for PG-13. Mm. I still can't wrap my head around what kind of a miracle that film is. There is a sense of, of wonderment and terror and... Uh, just everything about the film from its from all of those things through to the scene where they sit around as a kid I was captivated by them sitting around discussing the ethics of resurrecting dinosaurs everything about this film works and I think in, on, on those levels it's yet to be topped and the effects still hold up mm. that's the most bizarre thing do you think at all there's a, an attempt in 97 to replicate his 1993 by doing Jurassic Park 2 The Lost World and Amistad 
in, in place of his Schindler's List. It, it felt like there was an attempt to sort of recapture that magic. It's kind of weird, isn't it? And it's and it really is a poor second. <laughs> to, like, yeah. I don't think either of those are bad films. They're both kind of perfectly fine, solid 6 out of 10 type movies. But mm. when you're following a five-star double like that, you know, it's the Godfather 3 effect. Yeah. And, <laughs> but to me, I think you need to look a film further ahead to work out what was actually going on because mm. I, I suspect you already have one eye on Saving Private Ryan, which only came out the year after. Mm. I just think that film, because Saving Private Ryan, I think is bogglingly good. I, I just love that film, but it is the thought and preparation and just con- conceptualization that must have been going on that. I imagine even on some of the, you know, the shoots on a ship in Amistad, he must have been quietly going, now I wonder... If we got someone to strip the camera down, what if the first 20 minutes were just the invasion and those sorts of things? I, I do wonder about that. I, I had never seen Amistad until only two nights ago. It had managed to sort of be a gap in my Spielberg uh, library. And I, I, I enjoyed it, but I enjoyed it in a in a legal procedural kind of way. Like, this this could be an episode of, of Law and Order. Yeah, The Lost World was, you know, I imagine the, the budget generator, but then you get Saving Private Ryan, and that is a genuine feat of cinema. Well, it's also worth mentioning that he kickstarted DreamWorks in the three years, the four years in between yeah. as well, and I think that's probably, you know, took a little bit of his headspace away as well from those two films. And it's also significant in, in, in his development as a filmmaker, I, I think, being in charge of your own studio. Yeah, just exactly. a bit. <laughs> and um, and Saving Private Ryan redefined the look of war films, like even today. Like every every war film that f- has followed that has borrowed from Saving Private Ryan, you know, the high-speed shutter and the bleached-out colours mm. and the, you know, the, the you-are-there violence and the shaky camera. And Look, I mean, I think Saving Private Ryan... I, I, I hate the wraparound sequence. If they could just get rid of that, it would be a virtually perfect war film. Um, because, for one, the wraparound sequence makes no sense. Yeah. Um, oh, I can explain. I can both explain the wraparound sequence too, and 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 I've always forgiven it because that flag at the the top and the tail, that was that flag is what Clint Eastwood was trying to explain to you with flags of our fathers, which was god awful, um, and he thankfully made letters from Iwo Jima at the same time, which is brilliant. But Saving Private Ryan, that flag is there because. You know, that is what they were fighting for. And it is there to explain why there are people who tear up whenever they see their country's flag. And I, I genuinely, it was like, because I sat there at the time going, what the hell is going on? But because at the end, you have the moment where he's at the grave and his family don't know the story. So clearly have no idea why he's so upset. That was why that that to me was him going, This is why I made this film. It's so that you can possibly conceive of why what happened to these veterans that they can't talk about. I think that's that's fair enough. It's it's the twist yeah. of oh it's not who you think it is that sort of that sours that a little. But I like, do I think you're right about that. Yeah, I think you are too, yeah. It's just the whole, like, how the hell does Matt Damon know all of this story? Like, did Tom Hanks tell it to him really quickly on the way home? Yeah, or as he was dying? Because yeah, it's, it's kind of because Damon is not in the story until the very end. And but, so it's like, how could he possibly tell this? It just doesn't make sense. But other than that, I think it's a, a, a superlative film with a great ensemble, who, most of whom have mm. never been better. So we're into this modern phase of Spielberg's career, and I want to take a moment because I, I, I had to. I had a feeling that we we're all going to be mostly positive 
about his films. Giles, I knew you would because, you know, there was a reason you picked him. I knew I would because <laughs> I knew what I think. And, and, and I had a feeling Paul would. I wanted to write to a, a film critic friend of ours, Ben Buckingham, who is quite vocal about his, his dislike of Spielberg's films to try and get a sense of what he doesn't like about it. And it's here that we return to the idea of homogenization. And it reminded me when, he, when I was talking to Ben about it of an Oscars that sums up Spielberg for me in a big way. Mm-hmm. And it's when Scorsese and De Niro paid tribute to Elia Kazan, a brilliant director who had named names during the communist scare. Now, when he brought him out, the people who loved Kazan's work and had forgiven him or didn't care stood and applauded. There was a standing ovation. The other half of the crowd, uh, which included people like Ed Harris, who was still so upset at the idea of naming names, sat on their hands. They just stared. They cut to a shot of Spielberg, who is sitting in his seat, no standing ovation, but he's applauding. There is something so painfully diplomatic and middle of the road about that statement that I think sums up what, what people like Ben uh, have a problem with. And Ben described uh, his statements about, uh, particularly in his later films, racism and fascism, having these sort of cotton wrappings of nostalgia. And to him, they're soulless and, and just kind of have this sort of very safe appeal to uh, what is derisively referred to as, as middle America. And I think that, you know, whether you disagree with that, I mean, I disagree with that. I certainly don't feel that. But I think that sort of feeling uh, typifies his work from this point on. There's not a lot of a hungry young filmmaker that will do something audacious like a duel or even something audacious like the shutter speed in Saving Private Ryan, something new. From this point on, from Artificial Intelligence and Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can and The Terminal onwards, as, uh, whether his films are uh, complete successes, and for me, I would say War of the Worlds is one of my favourite films he's ever made, or complete failures like Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, there is still this mainstream Spielberg. He's, he's kind of set in his ways from this point on. Interesting. I See, I think there's one film that breaks the dark, that that in the 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 years since that because that's mostly true but i think his films are still you know again that master craftsmanship is still in evidence um there is a bit of a towing the u.s kind of line in a lot of ways but there's one film that bucks that that is complete that harkens back to early spielberg more than the others and uses new techniques Mm. and that is the adventures of tintin which oh, okay. I yep, yep. adored and is my favourite Spielberg film of the last 15 years <laughs> and doesn't suffer from that Spielberg syndrome that a lot of his latter films do, which is they're really great until the last five to 30 minutes um, and then they just over, overreach their grasp. And Tintin has that vitality and lacks those quantities that Ben mentions and is, yeah, and, and, and is the first film to really, like, really uh, use both motion capture and even 3D brilliantly. I'd say that's kind of almost the exception that proves the rule, I think. It's funny, I, I, sort, of, I, feel, I sort of want to address the broader concept, I suppose, I mean, partly taking devil's advocate, but I do actually sort of agree with this. I find it the people who really criticise Spielberg for his later works basically seem to be angry at him for after 40 years not still being hungry. (laughs) 
And I haven't got a problem with the man not being hungry after what he's done. I, I, I think if he was actually still trying to make the exact same films, he would much more rightly be getting abused for that. And what's he? And, and he would be trying to churn up territory that he has basically done brilliantly. And I think when you look at the films, if you actually look at those films in there, look, I. I think AI has all sorts of problems, but the one thing I'd give him the credit, sort of the pass I give him for AI is that he was trying to take on one of Kubrick's projects and see it through. And I think that's kind of, mm. you know, that's admirable, um, which is a horrible word and entirely patronising. Yeah, it's almost sweet. I should point out, I do love most of the stuff he's done, you know, since from 98 onwards. I, I honestly do. I think, uh, like I said, War of the Worlds is as good as anything he's ever made. I See, agree. I still don't like War of the Worlds. I've never... It's never grabbed me. I love the original... Um, I mean, the, the both the, the original words and then the, the rock opera for the purpose <laughs> of this conversation. I enjoy them far more. I think Munich, which came out that yeah. year, was, yeah, was very good. And also, I kind of think, dispels the theory. I mean, the notion that he was just you know following Hollywood tropes by that point, Munich certainly doesn't do that. I, I loved Munich up until the final moments, which, which has really undone it in my memory. Uh, See, I have the same problem with War of the Worlds. I think Munich, no, fair and, enough. I think Munich and War of the Worlds are pre- almost indivisible in that way, and it's interesting they came out the same year because I think they are both utterly brilliant, bracing films, but they both come like slightly undone in the last couple of minutes, but other than that, they're great. Sure. But, Whereas I think his great year was Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can. Catch Me If You Can is one of the greatest capers that's come out in the 21st century. It's a, it's a cracker. That's such a fun film, and, and I... It, like. That, that to me, you know, feeds into something like Tintin, which is a caper, but he then got adventurous with, and that's what I'd love him to be doing again. Well, it's, it's going to be interesting to see where he goes now, because he's been quite vocal recently about the ways in which cinema is changing, and his most recent film to date, Lincoln, from last year, uh, he talked about how difficult that was to get made. I mean, he spent years trying to get it made, and when he started trying to get it made, it was the sort of film that we saw more of. I think that was a bit of a last hurrah of the ultra-expensive prestige project. And I think he was basically saying, yeah, there aren't going to be many more of these. So what he does from now on is going to be quite interesting. I I think there is still another phase in his career, and whether it's Hollywood mogul producer and nothing else, or whether it's reinvented director, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see where it goes. I almost of feel course. I almost feel like he's considered that because I don't think I've heard Spiel, heard of Spielberg cycling through more projects than I have in the last few years. Like he's committed to about three or four things and turned down all of them. I think it was interesting. I think Lincoln. It's funny. I. I view a lot of the statements that have come out lately from Spielberg through the lens of Lincoln. Like when he, at the, uh, the coming out where, the coming out address they gave at, I can't remember which university it is, where he and Lucas gave that speech that everyone interpreted as them, you know, foretelling the downfall of cinema. Mm. A, they really didn't say that much, and what they said wasn't that profound, but he, what he also said was Lincoln was almost a miniseries, and what I actually think he was effectively trying to say is Lincoln should have been a miniseries. Mm. Um, there's no question Lincoln would have been better as a miniseries in my mind. I think that um, he has made, you know, he has been largely responsible for things like Band of Brothers, which is probably the only thing that's done World War II as well as Saving Private Ryan since then. Mm. Uh, and I think that I would he say knows... Better. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think it's because he knows that there are some stories that work better in that style now. And I think he may move into that area uh, even more so. Well, look, we've, we've really not even scratched the surface of his career as a director, let alone his career as a producer and, and head of a studio. But there is far, far too much to cover. Giles, thank you so much for joining us and and taking us through this extraordinary filmography, which is really unlike any other that we're likely to look at. Uh, no problems, and I promise to next time choose a filmmaker who made one short film once and then became an accountant. That would be great. <laughs> and we'll see the rest of you next month. Game over, man! <laughs>